Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Gianangeli. Andiamo avanti. The decision to actually commit myself to a podcast was a very interesting and complicated journey. During the height of the pandemic, I was a guest on a podcast centered on politics, um, which I am happy to blabber about, but I am in no way a specialist of any kind. Um, so when the episode was released, I was like way too embarrassed to even listen, knowing how hard I would cringe at the sound of my own voice uh, until over a year later. So when I listened through, I realized that maybe there was something there that I could tap into um, and this kind of fire ignited in me to create something that I could share with other people. Not politics, but something that I could bring my own sense of passion to. But the the first idea I conceptualized was doing a show on the horror genre. Uh, although, to this point in the show, with the exception of Dante, of course, I have waxed on about beauty, perfection, eroticism, and every other type of Renaissance ideal that we see in its art and history. The truth is, Renaissance history is my passion and my profession, but it doesn't come second to my love of horror. Naturally, there is plenty of space for horror in a Renaissance podcast, and with Halloween just around the corner, I think it's time we dive into the rich and terrifying folklore and ghost stories of Italy. I want to note that after much deliberation, um, I have decided that this episode will mark the official end of the first season of the show. Round of applause, please. We're far from finished, let me be clear, but... For me, it is research season, it is paper grading season, and that means that instead of uh, producing hurried, mediocre episodes for the sake of it, uh, we'll pick up when the hectic dust of the semester settles, and I can bring you fully incubated thoughts and analysis, as well as new ones from the research that I'll be doing. I'll also be keeping the social medias updated as often as I can, and be preparing for the next season of the show to be more systematic and focused. I noticed um, the first season was just kind of a hodgepodge of really fun, interesting, and compelling episodes, but with no like smooth direction, so I'd like to be more uh, linear in, in the approach for season two. So let's dive into the horrors of Italy. Do you believe in ghosts? Curses? Miracles? Some of these stories are the stock of raw imagination, compounded and reshaped over years of telling. Some of these stories are true, or involve real people who lived real lives and died very real, tragic deaths. I do not want to diminish them to silly campfire stories, but to give you insight as to how real events can morph into the fantasies of ghosts, legend, and folklore. I also want to give you the best that Italy has to offer in the genre, so we will be looking in and around the Renaissance, all over the Italian peninsula, where periodization is not so easily defined, 
including tales from the Middle Ages, an admittedly more vibrant period for these types of stories, and even into later early modern centuries. We begin where we always do in Florence, and the uncanny legend of La Berta. The year is 1327, and a man by the name of Cecco d'Ascoli has been found guilty of heresy. Ascoli was born in Abruzzo in central Italy and became a renowned physician and astronomer in his time. He was a professor at the University of Bologna, the oldest university still in continuous operation today. Yet, trouble found him as his outlandish theories got him in trouble with the church, with implication of heresy already thrown at him, and it won't be the last time. So he relocated to Florence to find new people to provoke. He made enemies quickly, openly criticizing Dante's Commedia and other Stil Novisti authors, in addition to applying astrological principles to challenge rather settled elements of Florentine religious life. So, accused of heresy, at 70 years old, Cecodascoli was sentenced to death at the stake the following day of his sentencing. As he is being dragged through the streets of Florence, he passes the church of Santa Maria Maggiore, and in a window, a woman looks out, watching this process, when he calls out for water. Well, as the story goes, this woman took it upon herself to shout out from her window, do not give the heretic water. He can use it to communicate with the devil. In that moment, Chekodaskuli looked at this woman who refused him drink, and he told her that she will be cursed to stay in that window for the rest of eternity. Now, to this day, Santa Maria Maggiore, a very strange head with a contorted expression juts out from the middle of the wall in a very strange place, and this is the legend around it that this is La Berta, the poor unfortunate soul who crossed paths with the heretical sorcerer Cecodascoli as he was being processed through the town on the way to be burned at the stake. Now, the reality is, we don't know what that head is doing there or how it got there. It's possibly left over from the medieval decoration of the church. But one can't help to think... What if poor Laberta has been there, doomed, since that fateful day in 1327? Before leaving Florence and diving into the deep southern part of the peninsula, we have to address one of the most bizarre stories of the Renaissance city that you can still examine for yourself today, just like Laberta. Many people flock to what is called the Piazza Santissima Annunziata to visit the Foundling Hospital, or the Ospedale degli Innocenti, which was designed by Brunelleschi, who did the, the cupola of the Florence Cathedral. This is a place ripe for ghosts in its own right, as it acted almost as a depository for abandoned infants, which uh, do not always survive their infancies. But that is not 
why we're looking at this location. Almost diagonal to it, across the piazza, is the Palazzo Grifoni, another work of Brunelleschi, where no matter when you go to the piazza, and I can attest to this, the window and the shutter on the second floor are always left open. The reason is kind of creepy. In the 1500s, at the height of the Renaissance, the palace was home to Ugolino Grifoni, secretary of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. As the legend tells it, his daughter was betrothed to a young man, who was very soon after sent off to fight in one of Tuscany's wars. Now, the young bride sat at the window, watching for her her new husband to come back, every single day. Unfortunately, battle claimed his life, and news came back to her that he was killed, but the grief that that struck within her did not stop her from continuing every day to sit by the window, shutter and window open, looking out, waiting for her husband to return. She did this every day for the rest of her life until old age claimed her a widow. When the family came to clean out her belongings, they shut the window. And at that moment, they experienced what we would call today as poltergeist activity, right? Things in the room started to move around. The wrath of the widowed ghost fell upon this family until they opened the window again and it stopped. Since that day, the window and the shutter have not been closed. And if you go to Palazzo Santissima Annunziata in Florence, you will see on the Palazzo Grifoni facade a window and shutter is open and they always are, no matter what weather, no matter what day. People who um, work in the palazzo, seem to have a familiarity with the presence of the daughter of Ugolino Grifoni. Now, Florence is not the only place that is home to witches or ghosts, sorcerers, legends of the macabre. I want us to pedal back several decades into the 1480s in a town called Otranto, the coastal town in Italy's southern coast in the Apulia region. Very much tied to our conversations on the cult of saints, the Otranto Cathedral houses the ossuary chapel of the martyrs of Otranto. As you know, the bones of martyrs are revered as holy, saintly, and therefore serve a religious function in churches. To be clear, an ossuary chapel is a chapel that is decorated with human bones. Well, Not many people know that the invasions of the Ottoman Empire made it as far as Italy. When the Ottoman forces arrived in the harbor of Otranto, the invasion was a bloodbath, the Ottomans showing no mercy as they looked to plant their roots to demolish the Christian world. Over 800 Christians took refuge in the crypts of the church, that is, until the Ottomans finally took the city and stormed the cathedral. The Ottomans gave these Christians a choice, convert to Islam and be spared, 
Of course, to die for faith was to die a martyr. The archbishop was the first to lose his head on the high altar of the church. It is said the clergy were sawed in half. You would think their public dismembering would convince the rest to convert to Islam, but they refused, and the 800 people were taken to a nearby hill to be publicly executed. The first to die was a man by the name of Antonio Primaldo. The Ottomans swiftly cut off his head where he stood. But to their great surprise, the body did not fall. Of course, that would mean they needed to push it over, but it did not fall. Their next solution was to bring an ox, tie the man's corpse to it, and have the ox pull it down. But the headless body stood firm. Appearing to these 800 Christians about to die, a miracle of God. It was in light of this moment that the Ottoman officer Bersabe converted to Christianity, renouncing Islam in awe of what he was witnessing. However, at his conversion, his fellow Ottomans impaled him, killing him on the spot. Enraged, one by one, eight hundred more heads fell from their bodies until the entire population of Otranto was either killed or enslaved. Oddly enough, their bodies would not decay until the following year when the Ottomans were expelled from the city and the bodies were at last relocated to the church. Stripped of their flesh, the bones of these martyrs make up the decoration of this chapel to this day, officially sainted by the Catholic Church. So, while these executions are true history, the actual telling of the story is different depending on where you hear it from. Some tell it that they were actually never given the option to convert and that they were simply executed, thus muddying their status as those who died for their faith as martyrs, right? That does not remove the dreadful concept of an unmovable headless corpse, or that 800 bodies could have remained undecayed until given proper funerary rite. In light of the complications around the sanctity of these bodies, Otranto and the horrors that occurred there has become one of the most haunted places in Italy today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. 
Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. That is, until we step further afield, outside the immediate scope of the 15th and 16th centuries, and look at haunted locations that host centuries of graves. It is with regret that I say that everything I am about to tell you is true. I am talking about the island of Povelia in Venice. Venice itself is an island city, situated in a lagoon and made up of countless smaller islands linked by even more bridges. It is among the most beautiful places on the planet. Outside of Venice proper is a series of other islands that were all under control of the mercantile capital of the Mediterranean during the 1300s. When the bubonic plague broke out, Venice was battered by mass infection and death. Do not get me wrong, COVID is terrible, but bubonic plague is the most devastating, painful, and highly transmittable disease on the planet. It was especially transmitted through the corpses of the deceased, making handling the bodies of thousands and thousands of people the most difficult and grim part. The solution for the Venetians was to establish a place for mass burial and a place to house the known infected. This is Povelia, the island tomb that is to this day illegal to visit. A word that has been buzzing around a lot in the last few years, quarantine, actually comes from the Italian quaranta, meaning 40, because the Venetians invented the modern quarantine system being 40 days on the cursed island of Povelia. Imagine the misery of being alive with mild symptoms, and chartered to Povelia where thousands of corpses were being brought and cremated or buried. It's surprising to say that some did recover on Povelia, most did not. By the end of the Black Death, by 1348, at least half of the population of Venice was dead. We often make the error that the Black Death was the only outbreak of bubonic plague, but in fact, until recent history, just about every half century, plague outbreaks were common throughout the world. It is true that Povelia was not enough to house all of the quarantined or all of the dead. But by the 1700s, Povelia was the checkpoint for those coming into Venice, the threat of plague ever present. Those who showed signs of illness served their 40 days on Povelia. It was eventually named the Island of Ghosts by the Venetians. You would think that the grim history of the island couldn't get any worse, but by 1922, a mental hospital was built on the island. Can you think of anything worse? Just like any early 20th century mental institution, Practice was not up to the standard of a considerate human being, and many patients died under 
unknown or mysterious circumstances until the hospital closed its doors in 1968 and the entire island became off limits. If you can imagine any place would have ghosts, it's Povelia. The small island is reported to house the remains of 160,000 plague victims, be it their ashes or their bones huddled in mass graves. The soil on the island is all in part human remains. And let us mingle their ghosts with the deceased mentally ill patients who found cruel death at the hands of their doctors. I'm willing to bet you could secure a private boat under the table to the island if you do not intend to come back. <laughs> Sorry, that was that was lame. Moving away from Florence, from Venice, from Otranto, one final tale will be enough to conclude this survey. I want to bring us to the far north on the border of France and Italy to the mountainous town of Trioria in Italy's Liguria region. In the 1580s, the town was struck with a famine. In the minds of the elders' council, some devilry, some evil was at hand here, and they knew exactly what it was. Outside the city center, in a small hovel of houses where the poor lived, called the Cabotina, they were certain housed witches engaged in satanic ritual, and this was causing their famine. And this comes at the time of heightened fear and the harsh hand of the church exercising its authority on who they deemed heretical, the loathsome Inquisition. These women of the Cabotina were subject to torture, imprisonment, and execution. What were they doing? What crime were they committing? This is indeed the Salem of Italy, a power move, a move of religious fanaticism, a move of the distress of power. These women of the Cabotina, they were witches, and if they would not admit it, they would be tortured until they did. At least four recorded were burned at the stake for their confessions. After all, they were making potions and killing infants in the Cabotina in order to plague the town in satanic blight, weren't they? That is, of course, until the wives of the wealthy landowners came to be accused as well, and the witch trials were now considered getting out of hand. It has never been in fashion to care when it's the masses of poor people, but don't dare question the integrity of the wealthy, holy folk. So the trials were called into question, and the authorities of Genoa and the church sluggishly brought themselves to end them. Those already imprisoned and accused? What happened? It's not actually clear. They were either brought back to a Genoese prison, or they were burned. So what actually happened in Trioria? We will never know. Was this secluded mountain town the refuge of witches? Maybe? 
But the real scary story here is the curse of the self-righteous, the weaponization of religion, and the cruel execution of Trioria's impoverished women. To this day, however, Trioria has a reputation rival to that of Salem, and the Cabotina is a place for tourists and modern witches to visit. Italy is ripe with stories of ghosts and witches, of the plagued, of the insane, and this type of folklore is bound in both history and tradition. It is not just compelling to talk about, it gives us direct insight of how culture is shaped, how history produces stories fueled by the insatiable creativity of the collective human imagination. Be it La Berta, be it the window of Palazzo Grifoni and the ghost who demands it stay open, be it the unfortunate circumstances of Povelia which have given it the unfortunate designation of mass grave and the horrible energy that must continue to exist there if you believe in ghosts or not, or of course the real people who died, either the martyrs of Otranto at the hands of the Ottomans, or the poor residents of the Cabotina and Trioria killed by a witch hunt. This season has come to a close, and we have had a wild ride. I am forever grateful for the support, enthusiasm, and engagement of my listeners. Here at the Italian Renaissance Podcast, we love Halloween we love the morbid and the macabre. It is a pleasure to wish you all a happy Halloween. Stay tuned for more episodes when we come back next season. Updates will always be made on the Facebook and Instagram, so like and follow to keep tabs on what's going on. I'll have some good spooky images up to accompany this episode. Until next time, arrivederci.